Hello and welcome to a bonus episode of Tech Talk. Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Uh, today I am bringing you an extended interview with Richard Brown, who is the acting director of the National Cyber Security Centre. You may have heard talk of the NCSC over the last little while, uh, particularly in the wake of the HSE cyber attack. I got to sit down with Richard uh, earlier today and we spoke for around 40 minutes, uh, so it's a very in-depth conversation about what the National Cybersecurity Centre does, about the threats that are out there, and of course about the HSE cyber attack. Um, I started out by asking Richard if he could explain to me a little bit about the core function of the National Cybersecurity Centre when it was established and what its main goals are. Yeah, it's it's relatively straightforward. Um, NCSC was founded in 2011, um, following a government decision in the middle of the year. It has three functions, and the functions haven't really changed over that period. First one is we do national incident response. That is to say, we deal with national cybersecurity incidents. It's a very broad church. Essentially, we deal with everything from you know a passing attempted incident in a critical infrastructure operator or a government department up to managing and dealing with incidents like the HSE incident earlier on this year. We also deal with um, what we call building situational awareness. That means we act essentially as a free flow information exchange for everything from national security, classified information in and out of the country, um, around cybersecurity, obviously, and down to providing information to members of the public, citizens around protecting themselves, systems, etc., from various different types of threats in the cyber realm. And the last one is, and this is probably the most complex of all, and that's we build resilience. Are we are we work in a various a variety of complex and difficult ways around building resilience and critical infrastructure across government and across society. Now, those are complex, variegated, and they operate in a multitude of different ways, but we can get into that in detail. The origins of it are interesting in terms of why, why 2011 and why in the Department of Communications. Um, I suppose the history lesson, and this can get really interesting, lots of European countries had entities doing aspects of this going back decades. So, for example... Uh, in the UK, CSG were doing this from 1942 onwards. Norway founded their same centre in London in 1942 also. Lots of countries started this in the 50s and around information protection and classification. Um, in fact, if you look at the, the darker end of this world, there were countries doing this as far back as the origins of the telegram. So this is 1850s, 1860s. It's not recent. Um, we started this in 2011 because, um, and it was a very useful, accurate piece of research done for the department back then, it was very clear at that point that there needed to be a central function bringing all of these these resp- responsible areas together. Incident response, information exchange and resilience. Because if you balkanise cyber, you break it. These syst- the NCSC works because the three different aspects work together. We can build resilience on the basis of information received in the, in the information, or so the incident handling process. We can go out and share information that we have received from other parties and use that ourselves. So... The NCSC's functions are shared essentially right across Europe. Everybody has an NCSC-type body. We all talk to each other via a network called a CSERT network. There's a management level above that as well, which allows us to share, for example, during the HSC incident. We had the incident on, I got the call at 6.46 on Friday morning. We'd been aware of a, of a minor ongoing incident in the HSC, on the, sorry, in the Department of Health the night before, so we were on, we were on standby anyway. With, by 8 o'clock that morning, we had told everybody else in the European Union exactly what the incident was, how it had happened, um, and what the level of risk was to everybody else, low as it happens. Mm. So that's what we do. And we're in receipt of those kinds of warnings from other member states all the time as well. 
Sorry, long answer. No, 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 no. But I, but it is really interesting to hear it sort of laid out like that. And we will come back to the HSE cyber attack. But I want to pick up on the point that you know you said it was established in 2011. Some people may think. God, that's quite far down the the technological journey, I suppose, particularly when you give those other examples. And then there'd be other people who'd wonder, you know, up until the cyber, HSE cyber attack, you know, how vulnerable is Ireland to these types of attacks? And is it not a bit much that we have a dedicated centre? Surely somebody could pick up the red phone if something goes awry. Yeah, it, it's very easy. And it's in fact, it's characteristic of the area. People often descend into kind of arm-waving hysteria when they learn what the level of risk can be. The answer to that really is everybody's at risk to some extent, but the risk is a function of a whole range of factors. We're, we've been historically very lucky with regard to cybersecurity incidents. The NCSC deals with about 3,000 a year, um, of which you know, a small number, 10, 15, are potentially quite serious of the order of the HSC incident. We've never had a HSC until now, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean. So we've been lucky good, depending on your perspective, that we've caught them as they've happened. Um, so, so bluntly, on that basis, the level of exposure isn't colossal. And as our minister said in, in a recent Directus committee hearing, um, HC were uniquely vulnerable. They were caught in a, v- a really awful set of circumstances and lots of things went wrong. Mm. You know what I mean? So we're not any more vulnerable or less vulnerable than anywhere else in the world. We're fairly resilient as a society and in terms of our systems, but there's always going to be risks. To go back to the historical question, some of the reasons for, for us being late slash early, and, and there is a, a debate there, is that we have always tended to treat security and national security as a very um, bespoke issue, which is never spoken about in public for historical reasons. We don't speak about national security mm-hmm. issues. Aspects of this work has been done by the Defence Forces and by the Guardi going back much farther than 2011. But because it was hidden away and it was dealt with in those realms, it never really made you know, the public domain and it never really got off the ground in the way cyber has to. Cyber has to be forward-leaning. That's why I'm here. Cyber has to be out and engaged because if you're not, you can't talk to individuals, you can't talk to companies, you can't share information widely. So it's a, it's a, it's a new departure rather than like a, a complete break from, from tradition. Um, the reasons why other countries have had this is that quite often it's sprung from a national security requirement to protect information in a certified way. It's very boring. I mean, it, it's one of those arcane things that people don't think about. But if you have to handle NATO or EU classified information, there's a very boring bureaucratic process you have to build to do it. You need authorities who are certified to manage that process. We haven't really been engaged with that historically. We are now. But, for example, the BSI in Germany, that was their role, information protection, not cybersecurity. Mm-hmm. Cyber came on much later on in the process. Yeah, and that is, again, it's a really interesting distinction between the two. Um, you mentioned there about the 3,000 cases a year. And I was talking to a police officer in the UK a few weeks ago and we were just, I, I'm fascinated by, you know, policing in general. I think it's fascinating. And he was saying that, you know, you you only really ever hear of the big wins and the big losses. You never hear about the the ones that we prevent, the things that we prevent that we put out before they become something bigger. Are you and your um, and the, the National Cybersecurity Centre as a whole putting out fires consistently or is it more, you know, building up barriers to prevent the fires from starting in the first place? Both. Okay. Um, so fundamentally, it's about reducing risk. Mm-hmm. So risk, I mean, I get, this gets very technical, but risk is a function of the probability of something happening and the consequences of it happening. Mm-hmm. So we do deal with kind of low order, widespread incidents. Those are bad. And high order, low order, you know, low probability incidents. Both are bad things. So what we do across the board is to try and reduce the risk of consequence to services and to Irish people. So in other words... It's a bad thing if we lose a major public service like the healthcare service for a while. 
It's also a bad thing if 50,000 people lose access to their bank accounts. Mm -hmm. So these are both bad things. So managing those risks in a, in a coherent way is essentially what we do. And right across the board, and I can get into the resilience building piece in a second, what we do in terms of dealing with incidents and feeding that information into information exchange, helping others defend themselves, and also feeding that into resilience building, showing others how to help themselves is what we do. Now, that's why all these three things have to work together. Um, and it's why the balkanization issue, you know, why the NCC works as a centre. That's why every other European Union member state, most countries in the world now have a centre of this kind of function. Um, to go back to the, the, the kind of the specific question as to are we putting out fires all the time? We're always watching for fires. Mm -hmm. um, we put out fires on a relatively regular basis. And quite often, and it, it, this is very important, the fires are out by the time we get to them. Entities, you know, government departments, critical infrastructure operators, big companies have put them out. Sometimes they're not even knowing they've put them out. It's caught by antivirus software. It's caught by a firewall. It's, it's, it's pinged by their own external security provider. And they come to us going, we've got this weird thing. We don't know, we don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. And then that's where we can go at our um, capabilities and access to unusual information to go, that's who that is. And that's really, really bad. And then we feed that into our process and now we know more about that bad guy. And of course, and this is the international component, mm -hmm. we also know what other people are seeing from that particular threat actor and we feed that information back internationally. So I'll give you a very technical case in point. We use software systems called MISPs, Malware Information Sharing Platforms. We have an instance of, of a MISP across Europe. So we share in the European Union MISP. We also have MISPs with entities in the US, with CISA, and globally with other countries as well. And that allows us to share instantaneously live threat intelligence and information around what's happening in the world. So if we get in something in from wherever, France, for example, we can activate that ourselves immediately. So we can protect again that, that threat actor here by knowing about it abroad. So it's, a, it's not just a domestic risk mitigation measure, it's also a global one. Um, it's a community effort. Just to turn briefly to the, the bad actors who are constantly trying to infiltrate all of those different mechanisms that you've just mentioned there. A few weeks ago on the show, we were talking to uh, Cisco, we were talking to Declan Power, and we were talking about the fact that you have the professional organisations who carry out um, big cyber attacks looking for ransom. But then you also have people who go onto the dark web and access malware, almost like a SaaS product, so software as a service, and they can run it. They're not as... I suppose, educated, perhaps ethical, if I could use that term, when it comes to, you know, deploying the attack. D d can you distinguish, when you look at one of those weird things that triggers one of the tripwires along the way, can you distinguish between the sophisticated cyber criminals and the person deploying the SaaS product? Eventually, yes. But okay. it's not always e easy to do it up front. So traditionally, we'd always have regarded cybersecurity threat actors as being ranked into kind of three groups. Mm -hmm. So at the lower level, you have script kiddies. The people you're talking about. The guys who go onto the dark web, find a tool that they might be able to deploy and go off and do it. Or they make their own. And these are sometimes gifted amateurs, sometimes just low-level criminals, whatever. In the middle, then, you have the criminal actors, varying in, in, in scale, but often quite competent and sometimes very professional around how they go and deal with OPSEC and deal with the security of their own infrastructure. And at the top end, but low in, low in number, you have nation-states engaging in espionage, destructive attacks, hybrid-type attacks, etc. What has happened in the last couple of years this is essentially what you're referring to, is the rise of ransomware as a service, mm -hmm. RAS. And ransomware as a service essentially involves people in the middle of this pyramid selling their software, selling their services, selling access in some cases, selling information to other parties. So previously you would have seen a, a particular type of malware in a system and gone, 
that's those bad guys. But now you think, that's the wholesaler, but I don't know who the customer is. So now we have to dig deeper and find out who the customer is, who's actually deploying the malware. Um, so if some recent attacks we've seen have been these conglomerated or vertically integrated cyber attacks. So in blunt terms, what has happened is the ecosystem has changed. The godfather of all of this, William Gibson, has this great phrase, the street finds it finds the uses for these things. It finds a way of using it in a different way. That's what's happening. Um, and in some ways, it's a democratization, social mediaization of cryptoware, of cybersecurity incidents. It's not easy to deal with, but it is dealable with. Um, and a lot of the systems we have are specifically designed to capture the upfront malware. We know what they are. Mm -hmm. Everybody's using the same five or six things to get in the door. And then the post-compromise actions use the same 10 or 15 different tools. It's the mix between those tools and how they're used that tells you who's doing it. And that's a global process. And a lot of this stuff happens, like you say, in the dark. Mm -hmm. So we share information with or we deal with disruptive attacks against these bad, these bad guys with other partners globally in the dark. Our, unlike the, the police where you can have successful court cases, our successes are pretty much always invisible because they have to be. Because if we tell the world what we've done, we've told the bad guys what we're capable of doing. Yeah, and that is something that I think when we've spoken to Ronan Murphy from Smart Tech 247, he often says that, you know, you have to be so careful in shouting about the wins here because that's basically show, holding up a signpost saying, we know about this, so go and develop the next iteration of it or develop something smarter. Um, but when you catch things, when you put out the fire or prevent the fire from starting, does the bad actor, does the bad guy get caught and are there ramifications or do they just disappear like Voldemort and then go into to fight the next battle? Um, quite often, the latter. Um, and this okay. is one of the real challenges. So a lot of the bad guys will either hide in countries where law enforcement is, is weak or unable to, to, to deal with them properly or they hide in countries where law enforcement isn't really interested in dealing with these particular bad guys. Um, that's the simplistic version. The more complex version is that over time, they always get gotten some way or other. So... Um, there's a whole international diplomatic security apparatus designed to engage with this kind of question. Um, in the European Union, we have what we call a cyber diplomacy toolbox, which means that member states will band together as a union and say, right, this act against this member state, an attack on the German parliament, for example, is a recent case in point, was conducted by this bad guy. And you know, we are now sanctioning this entity, country, whatever, against this and at the same time you know, for this act mm. and for, at the same time these four listed people are now targets of European law enforcement because we know you've co committed a criminal act against European infrastructure and then if they ever land in a country with an extradition treaty they have whatever and p it happens fairly regularly people are picked up in airports thinking that it won't be caught if they fly through a European airport or wherever it might be and that's it so it's not a, a clinical we have you within 24 hours we've handcuffs on you this takes years in some cases but remember, these ransomware as a service operators, particularly if we're talking about that, quite often they rely on a small number of skilled people who do the hard work. Mm. And those guys are particularly vulnerable. And if you take those out of the loop, then the rest of the system simply doesn't work. It degrades very quickly. The US have done similar, with both with national security incidents and with criminal incidents repeatedly, um, and is a growing international consensus. And we have a meeting in the US in mid-October around this kind of thing, around where we're going to go next internationally on dealing with these criminal actors who simply seem to bounce from incident to incident without ever being caught. Policing this is very, very complex. You can do some things through the normal policing mechanisms. You can chase funding. You can do that kind of thing. Great. And there's a lot more need for international regulation of crypt crypto assets. I won't call it a currency. Um, 
But in the cyber world, there's a lot more we can do as well. And we're working with partners in the US and across the European Union to do that. It's going to take a couple of months to get there, but there's a whole range of things we have in, in process. You mentioned the US there and you also said the word espionage uh, earlier on. The, the, the This is an area that I think the average person doesn't think about that much. And I think that's a good thing. I don't I think we'd all go slightly insane if we started to dwell on it a little bit too much. But when we're talking about espionage and particularly in the context of Ireland, I mean, how, how much of a threat is that and how much of a worry is that and how much goes into fighting against that? Um, so the, the history in the history of cybersecurity, espionage was the first and primary reason why cybersecurity incidents became a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, people always go back to thing, to campaigns like Titan Rain in the early 2000s. In reality, cybersecurity incidents as a means of collecting information for national security or other purposes goes back well into the 1990s, if not the 1980s. Um, so it's always been an issue. It's the, it's the origins of this industry. The, if you look in the US particularly, a lot of the work that happened in the late 90s was because of what they were starting to see in their defense industry as people were trying to steal defense secrets. So this is a, an espionage world, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. Here, um, well, as I said before, we don't have a history of thinking about national security issues in public for reasons that are entirely valid. Um, we are, as a state and as a society, always vulnerable to these kinds of things. Um, the theft of intellectual property, be it from government departments, be it from research entities, be it from private companies, is always a risk. Um, we don't have a large defence industrial complex. You will have large defence industries, which to an extent mitigate some of that. We have a huge amount of IP sitting on the island in uh, technology, in pharma, in agriculture even. Agriculture is, strangely, might be, might be odd to think it. Agriculture is itself a target for certain types of actors. So we're always a target. Everybody is a target question is the level of risk um we've seen obviously incidents of it here everybody has and it's always a factor but how we actually deal with it as a society is about resilience rather than you know any kind of i don't know overarching geopolitical response resilience against espionage is also resilience against ransomware it's resilience against everything mm-hmm. so as if you raise the bar you drive the threat actor away um, and we've seen that happen repeatedly because we're catching incidents all the time we might not have you know people might have not have caught five years ago, but they're cashing in now. Um, and the question for us, and this goes right through the very heart of everything we do with regard to the NIS directive stuff and everything else is, how do we raise the bar for everything? So one of the obvious questions and post the HSE incident is, how do we raise the bar for the public service? For example, universities, hospitals, government departments. Um, and the answer is we need a new baseline standard, which will essentially set uh, ground rules for everybody as to how they manage and run their systems. Um, we have that standard, it's built, it'll be published in the coming weeks and hopefully we'll have a public announcement before Christmas as to how we actually are going to implement it. We can't, as an entity, police everybody. It's just not practical. We, there will never be enough people in the NCSC to police you know, 300,000 public servants. But there are means of doing it, and existing means of doing it. And that's what we hope to leverage, try and get that done. And this is all about, in cybersecurity, risk management. How do you mitigate against the obvious risks? There's always going to be things, black swan events, that will do you over anyway. But let's just try and minimise everybody's risk. Yeah, and I want to come back and talk a little bit more about the uh, the structure of the National Cybersecurity Centre. But before we do that, I'd like to talk a little bit more about the HSE cyber attack. As I mentioned at the top, that is one of the, the biggest stories of the year alongside COVID. It, um, I, I clearly remember when it hit as well. Obviously, it wasn't as stressful a day for me as it was for you, I can imagine. Uh, you mentioned that you got the call first thing on the Friday morning. Um, 
Can you just give us a rundown of what transpired when and the initial steps that were taken? Okay, so I suppose to go back a bit. First of all, there's an ongoing criminal investigation, so I'm limited in what I can yes. say, obviously. Secondly, we have our own statutory process, which we have to go through around this, which will also have its own implications for everybody. So you know, there's limitations on how deep I can go into this, obviously. I suppose, practically, um, we knew the HSE was a target. We knew the health service as a whole was the target. We issued advice in October of last year saying this threat actor, the Conti Group, are engaged against health service targets. It's happening. And these guys attack hospitals all over Europe. And, you know, there's no question, no surprise about that. We'd also engaged in a series of different things to mitigate the risk of the healthcare services during the pandemic particularly. So we'd gone off with the private sector, cybersecurity industry, and put together a scheme to deal with cryptoware attacks against hospitals. We regarded it as a very high probability thing that someone would try and knock over a hospital during this. Um, the HSC itself was a huge target, but and we had essentially we have a, a compliance process with them that is distinct and separate in respect of their core IT systems, the NIMIS system, the you know the medical imagery systems, particularly and diagnostic systems. Um, so we were very much engaged with the HSC throughout, and we knew that they were a risk, and they knew they were a risk. Um, the problem was that when during the first part of, of this year, they spent a huge amount of time and effort on the vaccine rollout process. They drew staff from all over the organisation, and that because it was obviously a national priority, clearly. So that meant that there was gaps starting to appear elsewhere, which was a real risk. Now, in earlier on this year, I wasn't in the NCSC. I was in the Department of Taoiseach dealing with national security stuff. So when the incident actually arrived, I got the call at the same time as the NCSC, but I jumped back into my old role. I left in October of last year. Um, dealing with some of the incident response, but also the, the national coordination at the centre. Um, in blunt terms, we have a critical in national incident response plan, which is has a series of different actions, but it includes an escalation procedure for incidents like this. So for something like this, obviously the Taoiseach needs to know immediately, which is what happened, as did across government, Gardaí, Defence Forces, etc. And we immediately pulled together a whole communications process, which is set in stone anyway. Um, and an incident response process with which the NCSC essentially pulled the plug on immediately. Um, what that meant was that the NCSC had, because we knew this was a risk always, external IR on standby, a range of different companies at different scales. And for this one, there was only a very small number of companies that we globally had the capability and scale to go after this. We went and pulled down one of the companies that dealt with the colonial pipeline attack in the US and other attacks and brought them in on this, put them together with the HSC and said, HC, you need to go and procure something immediately. We recommend these guys. Mm -hmm. Because these guys are the only ones in the world with the scale you need right now. Um, and they got on site immediately. So we brought several hundred professional incident responders into the loop on that Friday morning. Um, and then, of course, we had the European process. We told everybody what it was. We had the full diagnostic process and, and forensics started immediately. By Friday lunchtime, we had a very clear understanding of exactly what this was and how bad it was. Um, we also had a very clear understanding of how they got in, what the process was, um, and how long they'd been around. Um, it took until Saturday, until we had a really clear, we had a clear roadmap as to how this was going to be resolved, and it was clear it was going to be a very long story. Now, there was a whole lot of diplomatic processes wrapped up in all of this, as well as to what you say publicly, mm -hmm. what you say globally. The Taoiseach took a very strong line immediately, which was, no, we're not paying a ransom. There will be no ransom paid. Very straightforward. It makes everything else quite easy, actually. Um, that would always have been our recommendation anyway, because paying a ransom in something like this, even if you're willing to fund criminal activity, don't think it's morally sound, it's still not going to get you further in terms of resolving the incident. The nature of the hate of hospital systems, and people probably know this already by now, is that they're uniquely difficult to manage. Um, 
healthcare systems, for example, people will kind of implicitly know this, we have different hospital ownership models. Some hospitals are owned directly by the state, some are charitable trusts, some are independent companies, and they all have instances of HSE IT systems affect, hitting their own IT system. So governance and running these things coherently is, is a nightmare. And it's a global problem. NHS in the UK had exactly the same issue. Um, so wh- how you actually manage these incidents is very difficult. And when you have something that cuts right across, that rips through it like a wildfire, then you've got a real problem because you have to bring the whole thing back up in one go. So we in- immediately knew we'd need a huge amount of hands on deck once we had a decryptor tool in hand to go around and decrypt literally hundreds of thousands of PCs, not one or two. Mm. That's why you know, the HSE brought in people from across the civil service, they brought in private contractors, they brought in the defence forces to literally go from PC to PC with a USB stick. And this process was essentially had to be run centrally by the HSE because they ha- the only they know where their estate is. Um, that's the kind of the really interesting thing for people to understand. When there's an incident like this, we do national incident response. So our concern is everybody else as well as managing this particular incident. But only the entity who owns the IT system can actually manage the response because they know where stuff is. Mm-hmm. And not alone that, they know where it is, how it's configured, how it has to work, contractually how it has to work. The problem is HSE is the biggest IT system in the country. Yeah. So that's why it took so long. Um, and there's still ramifications today. I mean, the important thing to note kind of from a future-facing perspective is that HSE's contractors and the HSE themselves have done a huge amount of work hardening their systems after the attack. So a lot of the things that Mandiant and the HSE have done have been to prevent this kind of thing happening again. There's always going to be a risk, particularly in individual hospitals you know, and in any organisation like this. But uh, they've spent a huge amount of time and effort to stop this from happening again. And we've been learning from that and feeding that back into everything else we're doing. So um, and we come to European Cybersecurity Cyber Security Month in a moment. But as some learnings from that process, we'll be feeding into that. You mentioned that the um, you, you could identify sort of what it was soon and quick enough. You could also identify that they'd been hanging around for a little bit in advance. Why wasn't it caught, captured and killed before it went to where it went? So that's the $100 million question, million euro question. The... In most cases, that's what happens. Mm. So there's a, there's a thing called a cybersecurity kill chain where entities, when they deploy these kinds of attacks, they run through the initial reconnaissance, penetration, they go through a, a movement across, a lateral movement across the system, they start to deploy malware, then they exfiltrate and, and execute. Um, in each of these cases, it can be caught. And in most cases, it is. Um, one of our, the head of our incident response team is a pilot. and He t- always tends to use the um, air accident investigation Swiss cheese model. You only have serious accidents when all the bad stuff lines up in a row. And it's rare, but it happens. And it happened in this case. So essentially, a series of things went wrong, not just one. And that's how you end up in this kind of circumstance. Most times, a lot of incidents we see, it's the initial uh, attempt or even the reconnaissance that we catch. It's some someone scanning, port scanning, looking for a particular vulnerability. And sometimes the nature of that port scan will tell us who the bad guy is. So a lot of the incidents we, you know, we, man- we count as incidents. It's literally somebody, a known threat actor, looking at a system and we can say that that's an intent intent means a risk risk means we have to react in a variety of different ways the HSC one got so much worse because everything lined up how big a factor was the use of old software There's, there was a lot of sort of headlines around that um poor old windows 7 got a hard run of things how, how much of a contributing factor was that to the end result um in this case very little okay um 
I won't say none because we don't know for certain, um, but very, very little. Now, at the same time, running out of date, poorly supported operating systems is never a good idea um, for anybody. Um, but hospitals and some industrial applications have no choice. So something like 12,000 of the Windows 7 devices on the, on the HC network are connected to scanning devices. So give you a case in point. You buy a 15 million euro MRI machine and it runs on Windows 7. So when Windows 7 goes out of support, you don't throw out your 15 million euro MRI machine. You firewall off your Windows 7 device and you protect it. And that's what happened in the HSE. Mm. Um, give you a case in point. In the 2017 WannaCry incident, that wasn't strictly ransomware, but leaving it aside, this is the incident that the NHS in the UK really suffered from. They got really badly hit. HSE here were, were entirely unaffected. Mm. And part of the reason for that was they had firewalled off all of their Windows 7 devices. Okay. All of their unprotected devices were behind firewalls. Um, and also they reacted extremely well at the very start of that global incident. So this is something that I think needs to be pointed out though because a lot of people were throwing around God, they were too cheap to update their systems or they couldn't be bothered to buy a Windows 10 or Windows 11 machine or whatever it is. So, so you're just saying that this is because and I know and I've given this example before I got my dad a device a few years ago for Christmas to put photographs onto the computer and it needed Windows XP and we didn't have Windows XP anywhere so we couldn't use the device it's, it's that kind of thing. You need compatibility to make certain things work. But it's not a thing of they were negligent by not upgrading the systems. They knew, they knew, but they had no choice. I mm -hmm. mean, you can choose to go off and spend, if you look, look across the estate, you know, three or four hundred million euro updating nearly new MRI machines, yeah. which might have a 15 or 20 year lifespan. Or you can protect the IT system. Mm -hmm. And as far as we can tell, as far as anybody can tell, in this case, it wasn't material. Uh, it didn't make any difference. I'll give you another example of exactly this, and it might resonate with people more. People will remember the McLaren F1. Mm -hmm. car, fastest car in the world at the time, 231 miles an hour in Nardo. Um, that ran. The diagnostics for servicing ran on an old PC. Right? It was 286 PC. So if you want to service your McLaren F1 today, you need a 286 PC, because nothing else will run the engine management system. It's yeah. backwards compatible. Now, they, I'm sure they put a VM together by now. But for years, you had the only mechanics in the US, for example, who dealt with this, had to have one of these PCs on the desk. Um, backwards compatibility is a curse. It is. And it's something that, anyway, we, we, we won't dwell on that point too much. I want to talk briefly about the decryption key. Yeah. This is something that, again, when, uh, you know, the Taoiseach came out, when everyone came out and said, you know, we are not going to pay this ransom, there were multiple opinions and there was a lot of debate about what was right, what was wrong. And then the decryption key uh, came. Can you tell us where that came from and how we got our hands on it? Um, well, first of all, I'm not sure there was a lot of debate about paying the ransom. There was some discussion about, you know, about the morality in general. But in our case, it was never even discussed. We just weren't paying a ransom. Okay. And some of that was moral, but some of it was purely practical as well. If you, if you get a decryption key at that point in the process, it's too late. Mm. The damage is done and you have, you have to rebuild the systems anyway particularly if somebody's been in systems containing people's healthcare data, can't just trust that the decryptor will work. Um, so it's kind of immaterial, it's done. You know, this, the fire has been, you're not going to just put out the fire and, and continue as if nothing had happened. Um, but secondly, the, the decryptor key, the process around that was exactly as it appears in public. It appeared on the bad guy's website um, for a number of reasons. Now, again, there's, there's a whole diplomatic and other backstory to this, but in simple terms, these guys knew they weren't getting any money from the state. So they were they were presumably seeking to use their leverage in a different way. So if they give something, then they can use expedite the threat of the data they were supposedly holding, which they were then going to release 
you know, in other words, they get a ransom in a different way, um, which didn't happen either. So to an extent, it may well be just the bad guys cutting their losses and running away. Um, we may never know. Mm-hmm. Now, these processes are always messy and complex, and there's always an awful lot going on during them. But during that process, the state never paid a ransom, never, never had anybody pay a ransom on its behalf. There was no quasi-pseudo-proxy, nothing. There was no money exchanged hands by anybody. Um, but at the same time, remember, we have a lot of access to information as to what people are doing and saying who these guys were, as in the different groups within this consortium involved and the dynamics within the group. So we had a very clear understanding as to what was happening within the group. So it was not a colossal surprise to us when this when this dropped. Okay. Uh, I've taken up a lot of your time. I've got one more question. Um, in terms of the National Cybersecurity Centre as a whole, is it big enough, powerful enough and manned enough to tackle future fires coming down the track? Um, well, the simple answer is right now, no. And I, this goes back a long time. So 2019, for 2019 to 20, whatever, 20, I wrote, I did both National Cybersecurity Strategy, Policy and running the NCSC. Now I only have one of those jobs, thankfully. Um, in the 2019 strategy, it was explicitly clear and government agreed to this that we need to significantly reinforce the NCSC. So going back two years, we knew this was a serious issue. We knew it well before that, obviously. So the simple answer is no, we're not. But in July of this year, government agreed to a really substantial expansion of the NCSC, not just to 45, maybe even slightly more by the end of next year, but out to 70 or 75 in a couple of years. But remember, the new facility we're building in Beggar's Bush, I'll talk about facilities in a second, has space for more than 100 people. Mm-hmm. And that's not an accident. So that's where ambition is. It's beyond 100 people. And that's not just to do with what's coming from the European Union, but also in terms of the, the, the increasing complexity of both the obvious public attacks, like the ones in, in the HSC and others, but also other incidents that we're seeing. So these are not simple processes, and the state needs far greater capacity to deal with them. And we're in that pipeline now. I mean, we're recruiting right now. So that's that. Facilities, the NCSC has uh, an existing facility in Beggar's Bush. We've, we've had a facility there for three or four years. But the problem is that building has to be rebuilt. We have to come out of it, have it rebuilt to a full modern spec, including our secure premises, and then go back in. So we're now in the process, meetings tomorrow about it, about procuring the internal fit-out for our interim facility. So we have two moves to do in the next four years, which is not ideal, but at least at the end of it, we'll have much larger staff, full modern office spec, which we can use for 20 or 30 years thereafter with a proper incident response suite. We have an incident response suite now, but where we need to go in terms of managing these much more complex, larger incidents is much bigger. Um, and that's what's happening, thankfully. That is good news. So just for anyone, and this is, I promise, this is my final question now. Last one, last one. For people listening to this, they may hear, it's great that we're seeing that investment and that development and uh, that the, 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 the new jobs that we created and all the rest. But does that mean that there are more cyber attacks that could bring different parts of the country to its knees on the way like is this a response or is it preventative I, I think that's just something people are interested in it's it's both and more okay so there's always a risk mm-hmm. i mean we see incidents all the time and some of them sooner or later we'll get a, another leaker we'll get something that will get through mm-hmm. now again our job is to ensure that as many people as many systems as many entities are as resilient as they possibly can be but you never know what's going to go wrong secondly you never know whether we're going to have another WannaCry. WannaCry mm-hmm. was a global incident, or another NotPetya, where you get these global vulnerabilities that are exploited by a wormable product. It's very, very rare, thankfully, but it can happen. Um, so, you know, you have 
the, the threats we know about, you have the unknown future threats, and you have a very dynamic global environment in this anyway. So we have to be ready for whatever comes next. Secondly, the resilience products we're rolling out right now, both in the public sector and the private sector, are growing and getting much more diverse. We have a whole new raft of European Union legislation coming around things like certification, for example, which will require even more people. And at the back of all of that, then, there's a huge amount of analytic work that we're already doing, but we need to do more of in a more public way. So a lot of the work we're doing now around European Cybersecurity Month, which is launching next week, mm -hmm. um, is to publicise the products that we already have. So, for example, we will have a, a section on cybersecurity for schools. In other words, what do primary and secondary schools need to be doing to secure their own small networks? We have a, a very detailed piece based on recent public issues around ransomware, for example. So in other words, breaking the chain on ransomware. How do you prevent an organization of any size being hit by ransomware? And if you are, how do you deal with it? Um, and we have pieces on other things as well, like the political sphere. So a lot of the work we're doing is leaning into that public space and explaining in much greater detail you know, what we're doing and what we're seeing and what people need to be doing. Um, we've a, if people go to our website, ncsc.gov.ie, always seems to be a surprise to people when they realize we have a website it's been there for about seven or eight years um there's a huge amount of information on there in terms of guidance and support for companies for private sector operators and we publish now a few a significant proportion of our advisories so we issue advisories to government departments and critical inf infrastructure operators very regularly and mm -hmm. they contain detailed technical advice as to what to do so for example there's a recent newspaper article that suggested we've done nothing on on recent issues in ios it's on the website TLP White advisory on the website, right there. Okay, that website again is ncsc.gov.ie. Uh, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and taking all of our questions. Uh, we really do appreciate it. Thank you again.